you need to create a culture where people are constantly reflecting and constantly learning from their experiences and discussing those experiences, whether it's informal reviews or informal feedback, after action reports, or debriefs, all of these components come together. And if you're not doing those things, I think in my experience, very, very difficult to get a high performing team. Welcome to the Super Managers Podcast, where we interview leaders from all walks of life to tease out the habits, thought patterns, learnings, and experiences that help them be extraordinary at the fine craft of management. Our goal is to bring you the lessons and the insights so that you don't have to learn through your own mistakes, but so that you can shortcut your way to being a great leader. This podcast is brought to you by Fellow, a software platform that helps managers and their teams collaborate on meeting agendas, track action items, and turn chaotic meetings into productive work sessions. Check it out at www.fellow.app. Hey, fellow managers and leaders, I'm Aiden, and I'm the CEO of Fellow.app. Today's guest is Dan Green. He's the Senior Vice President of North American Sales and Growth at Impossible Foods. Previously, Dan has led large teams and revenue-generating business units at Google and Twitter, and has even served over 11 years as a Navy fighter pilot. In today's episode, Dan shares how he's learned to lead with data and when to use instinct, and of course, when to use a mixture of both and how. And we also talk about the three elements of building high-performing teams, uh, from hiring to training and learning, and how managers can either be toxic or they can be game changers to the performance of their team and how to choose the right way to do it. If you find this episode helpful to your leadership journey, if you found the Super Managers podcast helpful to you, please take two seconds. We're really trying to give our reviews a boost. So if you could open your podcast app and just give us a five-star review, this really helps us spread the word. We're working on something very special for episode number 100, and we're trying to increase our reviews before then so that the algorithms can work to our favor so we can really get the message out. We'd really appreciate it if you could help us and give us a five-star review today. And without further ado, let me introduce you to Dan Green on episode 94 of the Super Managers podcast. Dan, welcome to the show. Thanks, Aiden. Yeah, it's great to have you on. I know you've had a pretty extensive leadership career. You've spent time at uh, Google, Twitter. You were a Navy fighter pilot for, I think, like a decade, right? Yeah, about 11 years. Yeah, that's amazing. And today, obviously, you're a senior vice president at Impossible Foods. So there's a lot that we're going to talk about today. I'm very curious about, you know, the, uh, I guess, like Navy background and then getting into tech. So we'll dig into a lot of that. But what I wanted to start out with was, do you remember when you first started to lead a team? What were one of the mistakes that you used to make at that time? The first leadership experiences I had go all the way back to like student government in junior high school and then like student government in, in high school. I was team captain for a wrestling team. Those are structured leadership positions. Not quite the same as, as leading the military or leading in the business world, but those are the first leadership positions I had. I think if I go back to that time, I would say one thing I understand now that I probably didn't understand then is as a leader, I didn't have to have all the answers. It wasn't my job to always have the answer and always tell people what needed to happen. 
that that can be a far more collaborative process. And in fact, it's more empowering when you involve your teams in, in decision-making. And there are times where, I mean, certainly as a leader, you should have answers and you should have perhaps many answers to things, but not always and not absolutely. And certainly important to pull people into the decision-making process. I certainly did not understand that as a high school kid. And I probably didn't really understand that until I would say, you know, decently early in my military career. I had leadership positions at the Naval Academy or went to college. It's essentially a whole leadership lab for the four years you're in school. The whole student body is organized as a military unit. So you have you have leadership responsibilities there. And so I learned a lot about leadership there as well. This concept probably began to take root at that point in time and really began to understand it in my 20s. That makes a lot of sense. Do you remember how you ended up realizing that? Was there like a single moment or was it a series of things? Like, how did you figure out that particular realization? It's a good question. I don't, I can't recall a single moment, unfortunately. I wish I had a good story about that. I think it just sort of dawned on me. It's probably more a reflection of my own experiences as a follower, right? Where there were times where somehow, you know, various instances over the course of my you know, younger years, where I was involved in decision-making and collaborative conversations with somebody who was leading me or the team that I was on and probably recognized the power of that. I don't recall a single incident or story that really kind of relates to that. What kind of a change has that made in the way that you approach situations today when, say, you're, you're impacted with a situation that you may not know how to deal with? Like, what is the, like, how do you tend to go about that? I tend to be as transparent as possible. So I try to talk, I try to provide as much context as I can about decision-making and decisions that, that we're making so everyone understands what's going on. Sometimes that's after a decision has been made, but um, there are plenty of other times where I'll use my current role as an example. Right now, I'm responsible for North American sales of Impossible, which is about 95% of our sales right now. We're mostly in the US and Canada. We have several other countries, but those countries are smaller. And international revenue and sales is picking up steam and it's growing, but right now, most of it's here in the US and Canada. And so I've got a team of about, about 80 people. Like any organization, I've got a management team as well. So um, about a dozen managers across that organization. And we meet on a regular basis and talk about the business and talk about what we're doing and, and discuss strategy and discuss decisions to be made all the time. And most of the time, if we've got a decision to make, most of the time I bring that decision to that, that group because we're meeting weekly. I also meet with my direct reports weekly as well. So I try to bring as much to the table as I can, as opposed to just making decisions on my own. Even if I have a pretty good idea of what I want to do, or even if I have a pretty good idea of what I think we should do, I almost always bring things to the group. We discuss it. And there's been plenty of times over the years where I might've thought we needed to do it a certain way. And in discussion, I realized, man, I wasn't thinking about something or I wasn't thinking clearly about a situation. And the discussion illuminates blind spots. And so that's the basic process that I run now. That makes sense. And how do you think about what decisions you should make versus uh, other people on the team or what should be done collectively or individually? There's certainly a balance. There's sometimes really sensitive discussions that have to be made, like leadership changes or team changes. In business, sometimes you have to do organizational changes that eliminate teams. Those kinds of conversations, unfortunately, can't be broadly, they can't happen broadly, right? Like there's 
It's highly sensitive. You don't want information to leak. You got to control the message. And so there are definitely times where we're dealing with sensitive things that I have to think about it on my own. Maybe I'm talking to my boss about it. So I've got that, or maybe my HR business professional, uh, business partner, sorry, um, is in the know. And then I typically try and work quickly to a point where I can pull in at least a few of folks on my leadership team, because even in those situations where things are sensitive, you still want to get input, right? Like, I mean, this is part of what diversity is really all about, this push towards diversity in business and organizations, right? Diversity helps you in two ways. One is it brings diversity of thought. When you're building diverse teams, people with diverse experiences, diverse backgrounds, ethnic and uh, diversity, et cetera, you are bringing people together that are going to look at the same situation differently and bring new ideas and also identify blind spots that you otherwise wouldn't have identified. And so the sooner you can get at least a few people involved in dealing with the situation and making a decision, the better your chances are of, I think, making the right decision at least, and uh, certainly identifying either opportunities or blind spots that you're not considering. Yeah, I think that's super helpful. And it certainly is a really good business case for diversity. On the context of decision making, one of the things that I know you've uh, you have an opinion or two about is leading with data and making decisions with data. It's an interesting topic, particularly because of your background in the Navy, where at least for an outsider, I think about I might imagine that there's a lot of decisions made based on instinct and like very quick decisions. And so coming from that world, how do you think about when to trust your instinct and when to trust your gut and when to think about data? I think it's very situationally dependent. I think there are times where you've got to move fast and, and operate with little data and, and make decisions based off your experience uh, and to one or the other instinct. Your instinct is, is influenced by your experiences, right? Your instincts... I think instincts, like if you're 10 years old, your instincts are going to be different than when you're 30 years old. And the reason, of course, is multifaceted. Your brain's still developing. But one of the things is you don't have the same experience and your experience influences your instincts, right? The idea that you that your instincts aren't based off of knowledge or even data is probably a little bit, a little bit off, right? Because your, your instincts are certainly informed by observations, i.e. data that you've, you've picked up over the years. So your instincts can get better. And you can rely more on them over time. But I think that there are plenty of leaders and managers out there that tend to make decisions based off of what they think. And the problem with that is you're just one data point, right? Like, yeah, you've got the, you've got the, the body of your experience, but like if you're trying to make a decision, for instance, off of what product to make, because you think this product is the right thing to do based on you know what you know, unless you're maybe Steve Jobs, like that's probably going to be the wrong, you're probably getting the wrong signals, right? Like, Consumer interests and consumer demand and sentiment is a complicated thing. And if you're not taking a little bit of time to collect data on what the market may want or need or what consumers may want or need, you very easily could develop the wrong features or the wrong product. So, you know, there are times where collecting some data is really very, very important. There are other times where you, you have to look for patterns, very little data, because you've got to make a decision now. And that's one of the experiences I've had from the, the startup world. You know, we don't always have time to collect a lot of data or you don't have a lot of time or you don't have a lot of data to even get to, right? You have to look for a couple of signals, maybe two data points, makes a line and say, well, we're going to go for that because we got to make the call now. 
In the military, the sort of general way I think that decisions are, are taught to one degree or the other is, hey, collect as much data as you can, get to 75% data clarity, and then make a decision based off of the best information you have. There's an old saying, I can't remember who, who said it originally, but something to the extent of like a an imperfect plan executed with energy and vigor now is way better than a perfect plan executed too late. I think that I've seen managers operate with pure instinct. That tends to go wrong. I've seen managers operate you know, like they won't make any decision without getting data, 100% of the data or try to get 100% of the data. And, and they end up with sort of analysis paralysis and they move too slowly. And there's sort of a balance in between that, that works. That's certainly a really good way to put it. I'm very glad that you you said that there's actually no one answer. It's a balance and it depends on the situation. I think like this is what makes uh, a lot of management difficult is a lot of it is situational. One thing I did want to ask though is, How do you, like, there is a point where you can, like, I think people have instincts about a lot of different things, but sometimes you can trust your instinct more than others. How do you think about, like, when you know that trusting your instinct is a good idea or, like, when you think that it's not a good time to trust your instinct? Maybe it depends on the scope of what you're deciding. So one of the things you're always trying to figure out when you're leading sales organizations is... What's the optimal sort of scale? Uh, like how many accounts or prospects should I assign to a sales rep based off of which segment of the market they're going after? And, and what's the right amount of time it should take to close a deal? And what, the, what are the right metrics to measure all that against so that we're operating this effectively and efficiently as possible? Because you've got this sort of sales engine, right? Leads come in, work them, and then revenue comes out. And it's not as simple, it's not quite as simple as that because there are you know, big customers, medium customers, and small customers, right? So, and there's a, a different sales motion and a different set of expectations you might have for the different segments of the market you're going after, depending on what, what your business is. But within the food service industry, well, within tech, it's really common to go after both large-scale customers as well as SMB customers if you have a product that, that fits. And how you do that is a little bit different. The amount of energy you put into enterprise, large customers versus SMB customers, very, very different. And so it's sort of natural to want to try and do that. If you come from tech, well, yeah, we should, you know, we should try and go after that. So we tried that at Impossible. Let's do that kind of thing. Let's try to get a, an SMB kind of team together and go after small restaurants, right? One and two unit, one and two door kind of restaurants. The problem is that the fundamental economics don't really work like they do in tech. The margins in tech are like 90%, right? If you're selling software, it's 95%. But if you're selling food, it could be 20%. It's a very different margin game. So the actual value of every incremental small customer is relatively low compared to tech. And then you got to factor in the amount of time it takes. So what I'm getting at is that we could have trusted our instincts, like and done the math and sort of said, you know what, this is probably not going to work. Or we can try it and collect some data and, and then decide if it's going to work. You know, I think it would have been probably the wrong decision to trust our instincts in that case, be like, hey, I don't know if this is going to work or not. But I think it, it did work to sort of try it, collect a bunch of data, and then make a decision and know for sure. Like we were able to, we were able to do that. And there's probably pros and cons to that process, but sometimes your instincts may be right, but sometimes they may, may be wrong. And if you have the ability to collect data to inform the decision, then uh, you certainly can be in a much better place. The reverse of that is is true. Like if we 
if we said, we trusted our instincts and said, oh, this has got to work. It worked in tech. It's got to work in, in food and built out a whole huge team and just let it rip without collecting data and evaluating, we would have gone down a significantly bad path. That's a really, really good example. One thing that I did want to also ask you about is the concept of high-performing teams. What have you learned about how to build a high-performing team? And are there differences in the way that you would answer that question, say, uh, in a military context or like in a high-tech company context or in a food context? Like, would you apply the same principles across the board? I would. I mean, I think some of my thoughts on high-performing teams come from my experiences in the military. I, I started thinking, you know, I think for anybody, no matter what you do, there is a difference between just sort of doing it and learning from your experiences and thinking about it and reflecting and combining your thoughts and your reflections with your experiences and accelerating your development. And I call that being a, a student of your craft. And I, don't, I think leadership's no different, right? Like there are people that I've encountered over the course of my life and my career that are really good at what they do. And as I look at that and I've examined that a little bit, in some cases, if not many cases, some of the best are students of their craft. Jerry Rice is one of the best wide receivers of all time. And one of the things about Jerry Rice is like, he's naturally gifted as an athlete, but he also worked harder. Like he, he studied more. He watched more game tape. He studied more in the off season. Like he was a true student of his craft and that helped accelerate his development. I think as a leader, I've tried to do the same thing. I've tried to reflect and study and write down my thoughts on various aspects of leadership or team building and building high performing teams. Is, it was a result of that. My thoughts on that were a result of reflecting on like, okay, the high performing teams I've been a part of or the ones that should have been high performing teams. Like what are the things that seem to differentiate them? How do you actually make that happen? Because if you ask anybody and say, well, would you like to have a high performing team or, or an average performing team? <laughs> Oh, high performing team sounds pretty good. Okay, great. Well, how do you do that? Well, you just hire great people. I don't think it's quite that simple, right? So everywhere I've been, I've what I've picked up on. This is what I've picked up on is like high performing teams have to be maniacal at the very. There's probably a lot of things that go into, but the very the foundational elements, the basis for it all is you have to hire the right people. You have to put a lot of energy into how you do that, and you have to then train. And it's not just train them in the, at the new higher point, but on an ongoing basis, you have to have a, a whole culture of, of around training. And then you have to have, you have to establish a learning environment where people are continuously and constantly learning from their experiences. Those three things combined have tended to make high performing teams in my experience. So, and you have to be maniacal about these three things because they're very easy to put into a and then either ignore them or put them into an administrative bucket of like stuff I don't really need to spend a lot of time on because what I really need to do is go sell, right? What I really need to do is, is build this, this product, right? But if you don't take the time to hire the right people and make sure you have a very thorough process on how to do that, you're, the raw talent, the raw material you're getting in will never get you there, right? So you absolutely have to have a highly selective a hiring process or recruiting process. And that has, should be very well scripted. And I've plenty of thoughts about that. But then the second thing is, okay, you've hired fantastic people. If you don't put a tremendous amount of energy into training them and training them on an ongoing basis, then what's the point of hiring really great people, right? Because you're not equipping them with the right tools, process, knowledge that they need to perform their jobs. And then the last point is that organization, that alone won't be enough, right? Because you need to create a culture where people are constantly reflecting 
and constantly learning from their experiences and discussing those experiences, whether it's informal reviews or informal feedback, after action reports, debriefs, all of these components come together. And if you're not doing those things, I think in my experience, very, very difficult to get a high performing team. So I guess one of the questions I would ask is how do you know, like if you were to, I guess like part of it is the, you know, if there's constant training and constant learning, that is is an element of it. But is there another thing, like if someone were to ask themselves, like, like, do I have a high performing team or is this a high performing team? Is there something that you would uh, look for that like are characteristics that let you know that this is one of those teams? I might conflate high performing with good culture. Those two things tend to be kind of related, but I mean, I would certainly look at those three elements, right? I'd look back at those three elements and say, are we doing those things? But um, do I have people that take initiative and operate autonomously? Do I have people that think creatively and critically and bring their thoughts and ideas and opinions to the table freely? Do I have people that offer feedback, whether it's feedback up or sideways or down on a regular basis? And, and do I have a culture where people accept that feedback and they don't get defensive? When we do training, do people wholeheartedly engage and actually attend and actually, are, you know, are they a part of that? Those might be some of the signals. And of course, like the biggest signal would be you're setting the right goals and your team's achieving those goals on a pretty regular, consistent basis. I think that makes a lot of sense. So you talk about this concept of, you know, hiring and making sure that you spend a lot of time hiring and hiring the right people. What have you learned about like finding the right people? What does a hiring process look like, say, at Impossible Foods? Hey there, just a quick pause on today's episode to let you know that we'd really appreciate you helping us spread the word about the Super Managers podcast. If you're enjoying what you're hearing so far, dial into your podcast app of choice, whether that's on Apple or Android or Spotify, and just leave us a quick review. Now back to the interview. I'm a product of my experience, right? So for a while at Google, I spent a while at Twitter. I went to a couple of different startups and I've been in Impossible for about two and a half years. And then I was in the military for a while. The military hiring process is a little different, right? Um, it's a little different than business, but there are examples of, of recruiting and hiring processes in the military that are really thorough. If you think about like um, what the Navy SEALs do, there's a really thorough, not so much recruiting process, but like vetting process to hire who they ultimately want. For me, a, a hiring process that works really well, in my experience, is it's kind of an operational administrative process, but you want to make sure you've got really clear ideas of who you're hiring and what roles you're hiring for, and all that's really well um, documented. You want to make sure that you've established clear criteria for how you evaluate people in the interview process. Hey, we're looking for these five attributes, and um, here's questions, literally questions that we use to get at those attributes. And here's examples of perfect, good, below average or below average answers to those questions. And take all of that, and then there should be, in my opinion, an objective numerical sort of grading criteria for each of those attributes. And whoever is interviewing, that panel should be defined. It shouldn't be an endless, hey, anybody who's available, hey, it's no, this group of 10 people for our organization, they interviewed. That's it. They're trained. They're calibrated. Everybody is informed about this criteria and these attributes, and how we conduct these interviews. And everyone is trained and calibrated on all of that. And then you, you make sure that people understand how not only that information, but how to run these interviews 
as you do the as you go through and interview folks uh, for various roles, that ten person group should be getting together every single week, every single week, and talking about the candidates, talking about the scores, calibrating uh, those experiences, so everybody stays in sync. Because what you want is you want Johnny and Jane to ultimately be evaluating as consistently as possible the folks that we're trying to hire. There's more details to it all, but that's the kind of process. I think the other thing I've learned is a lot of people tend to bias towards experience. They look, hey, we need to hire a sales rep to go close you know, large-scale accounts. And so they look for people who have done that and, and they look at their experiences and where they've been and so on and so forth. And then they run sort of an informal interviewing and discussion sort of process. It's not really well calibrated or organized. And they hire that person and they're biasing towards the experience. And what I think I've learned is oftentimes talent can trump experience. There have been plenty of times where the person doesn't have all the right experience. It's not that they don't have any, but they don't have all the right experience. But clearly we're getting signals on talent and they'll make up for it in relatively short order. And time and again, that's been proven to be true. Like where talented people can learn quickly and can fill the gaps in their experiences pretty quickly and ultimately outperform over time. I wouldn't say that's absolutely true. And I wouldn't say that that works in every single case. And I'm not saying that it makes sense to go hire somebody who has no experience to do a certain job because just because they're really smart and talented. But I, I most definitely, I would absolutely hire somebody who's a fit on talent and culture who doesn't have the right experience than the opposite. I would never hire somebody that has the right experience who's not a fit on talent and culture. Yeah, I think uh, putting it that way makes a lot of sense. And it was really interesting seeing how much work you actually put into it because it's the, what is this person exactly going to do? What is the exact criteria? And what I loved was you even had like example answers of what a great answer or a really poor answer looks like. I think that that's great. And even the concept of don't just grab anyone who's available to do an interview, make sure that the people who are doing interviews are actually trained on the concept. I think like that's a level of operational excellence that uh, would make a big difference for a lot of companies. On training, like I, one of the the questions on training is I think for some sales teams, maybe there's some natural ways to go about it because you are often like bringing people together and they're sharing experiences. How else would you think about training for other types of groups or what are the, maybe like the types of training that you do in sales teams? The concept of ongoing training was beaten into me at the, in the military because as an aviator, you spend several years going through flight training. You spend a lot of time getting trained, right? Flying and getting trained, it's endless for a good you know, three years before you're in your first squadron, in that first operational squadron. But it doesn't stop. It just continues. You're just constantly training. You're continuously training and being tested on the basics the basics of the aircraft systems and safety procedures, then your squadron takes written tests on a regular basis. You're literally going to sit down and you're going to take written tests every couple of weeks on like emergency procedures and this limitation and this thing. And, you know, every few weeks you're doing this as a, as a group, self-regulated. And then um, every year you have to pass a flight test and evaluation. And then there's lots of other tests that you're testing sort of that you go through as, as you get more qualifications, but there's a basic 
It's called NATOPS, which is Naval Air Tactical Operations, I think something like that. But NATOPS is the sort of governing cons, uh, regulation for a given airplane or the way in which we fly. And you had to have a NATOPS evaluation every single year and pass it or you couldn't fly. And so that concept of like, hey, it's not just about new hire training, but it's ongoing training to be great at what you do. So I've tried to take that into my roles in business. And it's not life or death working at Google or Twitter or impossible, but our success or failure as a sales organization is at least in part due to how well we execute. Certainly product is an important piece of it, but like if we can't execute well as a sales team on an ongoing basis, then we're not going to meet the goals and objectives we need to meet. And so we have to not only train people as we hire them and make sure that they know what they're doing, but we have to sort of like continuously devote energy to it. So ongoing training for sales teams means product training, new products or product features. We sit down and we talk, but it also means just practicing the pitch. So this is something we started, like we were doing this at Google. We used to call it Pitch of Palooza. We would just informally get together every single week, get the sale and, and just go, like do a mock sales pitch and then, you know, have fun with it, debrief it. I've tried to continue doing that um, at organizations I've been a part of. So even that level of informality where you're practicing the very basics even the most experienced sales rep has been there for three years or five years. Hey, let's hear it. Let's have you run through a sales pitch or just go back and practice and rehearse basic objection handling. Like these things, if they're not constantly used and, and refreshed, those really basic skills will get rusty and they'll erode. It's a good way to look at it. And also, I assume, I mean, you, you mentioned debrief. So I assume like there's a process of other people giving each other feedback and also learning from things that others may do really well or mistakes that they make, try not to make those. And pitches do evolve over time. They definitely do evolve over time. And, and this idea of creating a learning culture, part of that, one element of that is the concept of, of a debrief or after action report or what have you. This was also hammered into me in my experience in the military. We would, you know, if, if we go fly and you'd fly several times a week, three or three to five, maybe six times a week, Every single flight required preparation. Then it had like an hour-long brief of what we're going to do. And then you'd get your flight gear and you'd go fly, which might be an hour or two hours, could be three or four. And then you'd come back and you could spend hours debriefing, reviewing every detail from the preparation to the brief, to the flight itself, to the debrief, debrief, the debrief. Everything was reviewed and everything was commented on. And, and one of the really important concepts was you had to check your rank at the door. One of the things military has a little bit more than the civilian world is, is rank structure. Well, you go on a flight, you could be a lieutenant flying with a captain or a, you know, an admiral. And, but, you know, you come back into the debrief and you're equals. And no matter who screwed up or who did well, you call it out. And so I've tried to bring that concept into my jobs um, in the civilian world since then the business world. And, uh, and anytime we do a customer call or a customer meeting, or even just a, somebody does a big internal presentation, you know, we try to debrief it and provide feedback. Yeah, that's super interesting. So you actually do more debriefing and after analysis than you do flight time. In the military, if it was, look, I mean, if it was a really simple flight, it might take 15 minutes. But if it was a really complicated flight, like you went out and did dogfight training, you could easily spend an hour debriefing easily because you're watching. You're also watching videotape of the engagement. For, um, you can record certain things, but yeah, you can spend. You can easily spend an hour in a debrief. Yeah, it's super interesting, right? Like the, I mean, it goes back to something that we started the discussion with, which is just being a, a student of your own craft. 
I mean, athletes do this all the time. Like you said, watching videos of themselves, like marking things up and then deliberately practicing uh, very individual things to help you get better. It's everything. Watching game tape. I mean, the best athletes do this. I'm sure there's fantastic athletes who probably don't watch a lot of game tape because they're just naturally gifted. But I have to imagine most of the best are watching tape. Once teams start getting larger and um, you're now managing an organization, what are some things that you have learned in, in order to help just build a good culture where people feel empowered, supported, and, and also inspired to do great work? There's probably a lot of things. First, I'd say that managers do matter. They can be really negative and they can be a cancer in an organization, or they can be a game changer. Or they can, I guess, in some cases, be net zero. <laughs> but, you know, you hire the right leaders and the right managers. They're force multipliers. They will, they will help create the right environment. They'll help foster positive, you know, morale. They'll help inspire and energize their teams. And they will help retain talent. And so I put a lot of emphasis into hiring managers that I think understand how, how to lead. Um, and part of that is people that have high EQs that are p- oriented towards people. You have to be technically competent. You have to be able to do many different things as a manager. It's not enough just to be a great coach or a great people leader. You have to be able to do more than that. But if you, in my experience, if you're not a great people leader or a great, a great coach and a great people manager, I think it becomes very, very difficult for you to do well and for the organization to do well. There are a lot of examples of people that are relatively terrible people managers who are highly successful business leaders. So this is not absolutely true. I would not say that like to be successful in business, you have to be a great people manager. That is absolutely not true. I think to be a great leader, you do need to be, in my opinion. I think to be a truly great leader and a truly great business manager, I think you do need to be a really good people manager. Because in my opinion, to be truly great, it means that not only does your team achieve great results, but they feel really good about it along the way. And they feel inspired and motivated. So I I hold a higher bar than just achieving the results. And so a big focus for me is in hiring managers that understand these concepts and have uh, proven track records wherever possible of performing at, at a level where they're achieving great results and have strong, motivated, inspired teams. I think that the cultural elements that are important, the things that you, you know, to create that right environment, you have to care ultimately, right? Like you need people who care deeply about the folks who work for them as individuals, right? Like they've got to, they have to, to care enough to make time to meet one-on-one on a weekly, bi-weekly basis. They have to care enough to make time when that person really needs to talk. They have to care enough to get to know the individuals who, who report to them. They have to care enough to work the extra hours because they had to put time into this person or that person or whatever, and now they've got to get something done for the business or what have you. They have to care enough to promote and celebrate their people's wins, you know, and to support them and give them feedback when they mess up. Caring deeply is the quintessential sort of difference between, I think, great people managers and average people managers. So I look for that kind of trait as well. We've talked about a lot of different topics. We've talked about leading large teams, continuous learning, high-performing teams. We delve into training quite a bit. One of the questions that we like to ask everybody who comes on the show is uh, for all the managers and leaders constantly looking to get better at their craft, are there any tips, tricks, or final parting words of wisdom that you would leave them with? Actually, I think that part about caring is one of the 
I think one of the more important things. Like in my experience and in my opinion, great leadership comes from a servant-based mindset. Your job is to help figure out what the right strategy is, help figure out what the right goals and objectives are, the right path for your team, your organization. That's, that's your job. And you don't have to do that alone. Like your team can help you with that. It's not your job just to do it all, do all that, you know, come up with it on your own, as I was saying in the beginning. That's step one. And then step two is to care deeply about your people, take care of your people, and they'll help take care of the rest. And so that's a really simple leadership philosophy, right? Define the mission, vision, path, and objectives. Take care of your people. They'll take care of those first, that, that point one, you know? And taking care of your people means supporting them. It means building the right connection and building trust. It means helping them do their jobs, giving them coaching, guidance, mentorship when they need it. It means lifting barriers and, and helping to solve problems. And ultimately, it really means supporting them. And when you, when you do that, when you really do that, your team see it, right? Like it's very apparent. They know they're supported. They know you have their back. They know you're there for them and they know you care deeply. And that creates trust and confidence in your leadership ability. And they will follow you and they will be inspired in their work. And when they follow you and they're inspired in their work, they will ultimately achieve what you need them to achieve. You don't have to be a jerk. You don't have to be um, a tyrant and sit there and sort of just tell people what to do in a in a disconnected way in order to achieve the objectives you're trying to achieve. There's a better path than that. That's great advice and also a great place to end it. Dan, thanks so much for doing this. Yeah, my pleasure. Good questions. It was, it was good to chat with you. And that's it for today. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Supermanagers podcast. You can find the show notes and transcript at www.fellow.app/supermanagers. If you like the content, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so you can get notified when we post the next episode. And please tell your friends and fellow managers about it. It'd be awesome if you could help us spread the word about the show. See you next time.